Um, Church, if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to open those up to Luke 2, the story that Russell and Paul just read to us this morning. And, um, you know, I think about this. This is not the first time you've heard this story or this passage. But I think about it, and I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at, you know, you have the birth of God and it's described in seven verses. Just seven. You would think that such a momentous occasion that Luke would probably spend at least a chapter, right? At least a chapter. But Luke does it in seven verses. Luke has this ability to create and communicate remarkable things in just a few words. I myself do not have that gift. If you're a member of the church here, you know I don't have that gift. But again, all things are possible with Christ. Um, but as we, as we look at this story today, as we get into it, um, one of my favorite things to do here as pastor, I've told you guys this before, but one of my favorite things to do here that I get to do is when I see uh, our parents give birth to newborn babies. When new babies are born to our church family, like God has given me this, this love for the parents and the love for the kids. And I, quite honestly, I didn't have it uh, prior to being a pastor. Uh, of course, I enjoyed it, but God's just given me a great love uh, for these new little ones. And so what I typically do or I, I try to do is when a baby is born to a family, I try to visit Uh, to the house or the hospital. Um, Callie goes with me often because she loves them as well. I I open up Psalm 127. I read that uh, over the parents and the children. If you're here and uh, some of you, I see I got to do that with you and I loved doing that. And uh, it just screams the grace of God in giving us these little kids. And so I'm I'm so thankful that I got to do that here um, as pastor. But if I'm being honest, sometimes when I look at our young parents and and these these children, I I think, wow, they really have it made. (laughs) And and so, and maybe that's my mind compared to when I had children, you know, several years ago. But I think about that and I, I look at these parents and like and these children, and like there's nothing that 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 is not done for the comfort not only of the parent but the comfort of the child. Uh, I'm talking about things like uh, monogram blankies. I'm talking about Christmas jammies that they may only wear one time. I'm talking about beanies. I'm talking about some crazy car seat uh, stroller game. I mean, some of these parents and these kids strong in those games. I have strong skinny jeans on the kids. and, uh, And then these kids get to roll around in these Vans that have TV, HD TV screens all over the car. I mean, it's just plush and comfort all for the children and all for the parents. And listen, if you're here, I know you're here. I'm not dogging you. I promise you I'm not. Uh, this just really sets up my sermon. So I'm just doing it. So go with me. Um, but, but there's nothing that the parents won't do. Have you guys seen these things called a mamaroo? Anybody? Mamaroo? 
Okay, well, I'm going to get educated you today. I didn't know what it was either. I had to Google it. But here's what a, a mamaru is. A mamaru basically is a glorified bassinet, right? That's, it's high, high tech. And if, if MTV Cribs had a show for babies, the mamaru is where they want to live. It's, the, it's, it's, it's blinged out, it bounces, and it Bluetooths. All right, you, you put the baby in the mamaroo and, and it's blinged out with all these little things to keep the child entertained and there's this toys dangling and all these things and then you, you sit it in there and then uh, you set it to bounce. It bounces, it just, it bounces up and down like a mama bounces a baby, mamaroo, you get it. And so it's just doing all these things and then you Bluetooth the thing. It's got a Bluetooth on it. You sync it to your phone and you can set the songs and the music that just kind of play over the child as it sits there. It is incredible. It allows the parents to, to do things, right? You strap, you take the baby, you strap it in the mamaru. It sits there. You, you close it up. You set the Bluetooth and the speed of the bounce and all. And then and the parents get to go do things, right? They get to go take a shower. Uh, they get to go cook or clean or Netflix binge or do what all newborn parents want to do the most, nap, right? That, it just gives them the ability to do that. That's the mamaru, right? When we look at the Christmas story here in Luke 2, that is not at all what we see in this scene. That is not at all what we see here in the text. We should be all struck by the emphasis on where Luke tells us that the sinless son of God was laid the, the truly only perfect baby that was ever born on the face of the earth, the sinless son of God was not laid in a luxurious mamaru, but in a lowly manger. In a lowly, lowly manger. Luke's the only gospel writer that uses the word manger. Three times he uses this phrase in the Christmas narrative. What is a manger? I've got a physical illustration for you today. I want you to see a picture of a manger. This is a picture that I took with my phone when I went to Israel in 2017. And on that, um, that trip, they, they take you to one of the traditional sites of the birth of Christ. I mean, it's not verified. It's not 100% true. But it would have been something like this, very much like this. You go down to a cave and then you see this little stone manger sitting in, and Jesus would have been born in something very much like this, a manger. A manger is a feeding trough for stinky, sweaty, slobbering animals. And I know that this is not the first time that you've heard this story. You've heard that Jesus was born in a manger from 100,000 times probably. But I want you to think for just a moment. I, I myself never want to get numb to the fact that Jesus was born in a manger. And I hope that you don't either. But think about it. The, the event 
that changed the history of the world forever. God abandoning his royal throne room. God doing that. Entering the physical world, time and space, as a baby. And he chose to lay down in a barn animal bassinet. Heaven opened up its most precious one of all, the God-man Jesus, the most precious that ever came out of heaven, Jesus, and chose to lay his humility, his majesty, and his holiness in a stinky sheep pen. Why? God could have done a million other things. Why a manger? Clearly, this is not just some simple description in the story of the birth of Christ. Luke wants to communicate something to us. There's something about the manger, something about the manger, a message that he wants to tell us about the manger, about the one that was in it, And what he was called to do, there is a message in the manger. And that's what we're going to look at today, the message of the manger. Now, there are three things that we're going to see as we walk through the text. The first thing I want you to see is that the manger is not a mistake. Second thing we'll see is that the manger is a sign And lastly, we will see that the manger is a message. All right, so let's look at these three things together. The first one is that the manger is not a mistake. The manger is not a mistake. Now, if you read this story superficially or on the surface, shallow, it can look like the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ, uh, was just this The reason that he ended up in a manger was just kind of the result of bad booking, bad luck, fate. Maybe those are the reasons that it happens there. Maybe it's because it's just a big fluke that he ended up in the manger. Or possibly reading the story and we can look at this manger as a mistake because we see in the text it says there was no room for him at the end. Let's read a little bit or let's examine a little bit more and to see if that's actually the case. You know, Luke opens the passage not with a once upon a time fable fairy tale. Some say the birth of Christ, fable, fairy tale. You know how you don't start fairies and fable tales? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. That's not how you start a fable, right? The reason it is because this is a true historical fact. A true historical event in human history documented by a physician, not a fable writer. The story here is written in the fourth quarter of Mary's pregnancy. It says, in those days, a political census was decreed by Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, that all men 
should go to their hometown, the place of their birth, in order so they could do this political census. Now, Joseph and Mary at the time, Joseph specifically here, was in the town of Nazareth. That's where he was. That's where his residence was. But now it says here that he had to return to his hometown, which was Bethlehem, because Joseph was from the lineage of David from Bethlehem. So Joseph has to make a trip to Bethlehem, and Mary, as his wife, follows her husband, right? A great move there. That's awesome. I'm going with him. So they have to make this trek to Bethlehem, 100 miles probably to this good-for-nothing town, and he packs up his wife who's pregnant. She's about to pop, probably throws her on a donkey. They get down there. Joseph's got to walk. This journey must have been extremely, extremely hard. Think about the, the circumstances surrounding their 100-mile trip. She's on a donkey. Joseph's on foot. He's not wearing New Balance or Skechers or anything like that. They're walking on dirty roads, sore feet, hot, hungry, probably cold. I, I don't know all, but I just know it wasn't good. And you think Mary's getting ready to have a baby. This is how she's spending her baby moon? She's not having a party, not a shower for Mary. She's not going to the nail salon or the day spa to get ready for this big day. She's just hoofing it with Joseph. This is a very, very hard journey that didn't have anything to do with comfort. They get to the place, Bethlehem, and we are told that there was no room in the inn, no shower to take, no midwife or mom to hold Mary's hand during the pregnancy or during the delivery. They enter a stable because there was no room. They enter the stable, which is somewhat like a cave. They go down in there, and the stable stinks because that's what stables do, right? They stink. There's a stench. There's a a, a repugnant smell of a stable. This is disgusting. Ground is hard. The stench of Urine and dung are everywhere. Probably cobwebs, maybe mice running around the floor. I don't know. The delivery room for the mother of Christ was a dirt floor. There literally, there's no more lowly place on the planet to give birth to Christ. And then we were told in verse 6 that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, again, if you read that story from a shallow, superficial standpoint and just walking through the narrative, it, it looks like bad luck or cruel fate. Or worse, it looks like God is an absent father who has abandoned Joseph and Mary. 
He had come to them through the angel Gabriel. He promised them what was going to happen. This is a good thing. It's going to happen. You will be blessed. I'm going to take care of you. I love you, Joseph. I love you, Mary. I'm going to be with you. And this is what they're dealt with. Surely, maybe even they thought, this must be a mistake. The manger must be a mistake. But if we look closer, we can see God's providence and sovereignty drenched all throughout this story. If you know who God is, and you know your Bible, you will see God's providential hand all over the story. Story, as I said, is not a mistake. It's God's masterful plan. In order for you to understand that, in order for me to understand that, we have to know two things about God. God is sovereign, which simply means God is powerful Controls all things on the planet at all time. He is sustaining all of creation and every creature in it. And it is his good purpose and will to do whatever he wants to. That is the sovereignty of God. God's providence is his good and purposeful sovereignty. Meaning he's not just doing whatever the heck he wants to. He's doing it for a purpose. And this story is drenched in the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. And so here's what I want you to know. This is about his masterful plan. From the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, the manger was in the mind of God. It wasn't a reaction to the rebellion of man. The manger was always on his mind before the foundation of the world, before there was a tree in the garden and a cross at Golgotha. There was a manger in the mind of God. This is his plan from the get-go. And then in fact, 700 years before the manger, the prophet Micah, prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Let's look at it. Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are little, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So God planned it before the foundation of the world. And 700 years prior to the manger, God said, my son, the promised one from Genesis 3, 15, would come and he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born in Bethlehem. But how is this baby going to be born in Bethlehem when its mama and Joseph are in Nazareth? There's no reason to go to Bethlehem. It's not where they live. How's God going to get this baby born in Bethlehem, a hundred-mile trip for Joseph and Mary? How's he going to get him there? Doesn't look good. The birth's coming up, and they're not there. How will God get his 
one and only son to his birthplace. Here's how. He wielded the heart of the most powerful man in the universe, Caesar Augustus. He put it in his heart to have a census, a decree that would require all people to go back to their hometown. You might say, wait, hold on. How did God do that? Look, looks here like Caesar called the, called the decree, right? He called the census, right? Look with me in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart, Caesar Augustus' heart, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God turned the heart of Caesar Augustus to make a decree, a census, to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. They're not there because of Caesar Augustus. They're there because a sovereign, providential God got them there. He's orchestrating the whole thing. He's orchestrating the whole story. All these things that are unfolding here in these seven verses, God is not pacing heaven, walking around, and oh, I really hope this looks works out good. Like, I got to get him there, and it's like the, the third trimester. She's not there. I don't know. I hope it all works out. Oh, I hope Caesar really does this thing. I don't really know what's happening. I hope this works out. That is not the God of the Bible. God is sovereignly working the whole thing. He's showing that he's sovereign over history, over geography. He's sovereign over kings, societies, culture. He's moving all of these things according to his good and purposeful plan. And if you understand that, it's a ludicrous thought that God could not provide a room in the end for his son. It's ludicrous. Jesus was laying exactly where he was supposed to be laying an animal trough. This was not a mistake. This was the master plan of God from the beginning. What does that mean for you and me? It's a nostalgic story. What does this have to do with me? Now, we, can, we have to be careful here. Sometimes we read our Bible and we're a little bit too me-centered. What does this mean for me? Yes, we, we don't need to read our Bibles that way, but there are also times when we read this and we say, what does this mean for me? How does this story impact my life today? Here's the way it impacts your life today. Just like the manger was not a mistake, everything that's happening in this world today, including the things that are happening in your life, are not a mistake. Everything. Everything that's happening in our world today. Politics, economy, world war, the cultural issues that we face today is not 
ultimately a mistake. Is it evil? You better believe it is. But when we look at the world unfolding before our eyes, we do not need to say this is a mistake. God is sovereignly working all things He's willing and working and turning the hearts of presidents and politicians today to bid his will. He's over geography, human history. This same God that we've just read about in the story is still doing these things today. And so we, if we understand that properly, then we are not a bunch of alarmists who watch CNN and then go freak out at what's happening in the world, do we? If God is sovereign and it's not a mistake and he's working all things together for some kind of good that we don't quite see, we don't run around in the world and say, what is the world coming to? We know what the world's coming to. It's coming to fruition. It's coming to completion because God is working all things in this world today. If that's true, and it is, then that means everything also in your life that has happened to you or is happening to you or will happen to you is not a mistake. Now, let me, let me, let me, let me follow up with a statement because I know when we make statements about the sovereignty of God, I know there are people here amongst us say, what are you saying? The people, it doesn't matter what people do. They're not held accountable for what they do. You're telling me that God's doing all this? I'm telling you that God is sovereign and that man is responsible too. And this is one of the divine mysteries of God in the universe. It runs all throughout scripture. God is sovereignly and providentially working all things according to his good that nothing happens without his permission or his causation. And at the same time, we're responsible for what we do. If you see that, those two things, they run all throughout Scripture like two train tracks, perfectly in sync, never contradicting one another, all going towards the same direction, and they never intersect. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility And when you and I can understand that, that is when we will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace that surpasses all understandings comes when you read your Bible, when those true truths are there, and when you live your life in the sovereign hand of the Lord. Again, these are not mistakes I love what John Piper says about this idea about God working all things. He says that God is probably doing 10,000 things in your life right now, but you might be only aware of three. Listen, church, I, I, I don't know what you're going through today. I do not know, but I know this. It's not a mistake. God is working something in your life. Trust it and embrace the peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's go to the second point here. The manger is a sign. 
The manger is a sign. Look at verse 7 with me. Just verse 7. It says this. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. As Mary birthed the Son of God in the world he created, here's what she did. Like every other mom, she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. That was normative. To wrap a baby in swaddling cloths is basically like an infant straitjacket. That's what it is. Uh, all my kids, all Houdinis, they never stayed in their swaddling cloths. They always escaped. But here, that's what she wraps up her child in swaddling cloths. Now, what's interesting about the story is typically in the first century, a, the nobility of a child would, uh, would reflect in the cloth that they swaddled the baby in. Here's what I mean. The birth of great nob- nobility, perhaps even a king, you would wrap up that baby in fine, fine linen. Maybe it was laced with gold or silver, just something decorative. You could see this baby is of noble birth, not like other babies, Perhaps that even Jesus would be, uh, have a monogram of J.C. on his swaddling cloth. That's what we would expect. But that's not what we get. Jesus is wrapped in the same swaddling cloth that every other common baby was born into. He's sitting in a stable. Don't you think that, that swaddling cloth also smelled dirty, stinky, stenchy? And you wrap the son of God in that? That is mind-blowing. That's, that's just mind-blowing. It doesn't make any sense, or, or does it, if we continue to look a little bit closer? How is this baby then, if it's wrapped in the same swaddling cloth as every other baby born in Bethlehem, how is this baby then going to be distinguished different than all the others? Well, if you fast forward a little bit in verse 11, we get a sign of what's going to be different about this baby. We have the shepherds out in the field by night. The skies explode with the glory of God. A light shines so bright. And they tell the shepherds, the good news today is born to you, Christ, Savior, the Lord. And he said this, the angel Lord said this to the shepherds about a sign. Look at 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. We already said that, right? So the the swaddling cloths is not the sign. What does Luke say the sign is? He's going to be lying in a manger. The manger is the sign. Every other baby in Bethlehem was wrapped in swaddling cloths, but there was not another baby in all of Bethlehem. No parent would ever dare put their child in an animal trough, much less a king, right? But this is the way that you'll know this baby is the savior of the world is because this baby is going to be laying in a manger. The manger was the sign. 
You find the baby in the manger, and you will find the king of kings. Now, signs do something. What do signs do? Signs point, give direction. They point to something, right? No one drives to Florida and sees the Florida sign and gets out and says, we made it. We're at the sign. Let's just pop up a tent here and have a vacation right by the sign. You don't do that, right? Because the sign points you to something. The manger is the sign. It's pointing to something more specifically. It's pointing to someone. It's pointing to someone. This manger has a message. This is our last point. The manger has a message. Think of it this way. The manger is a preacher. Or the manger is a sermon that shouts out a message about the one that it holds and what he came to do. The manger preaches a message about the one it holds and what he came to do. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, let's look at it. This will answer both of those questions. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The manger preaches a message that the baby in the manger is not just a baby in a manger. The baby in the manger was Emmanuel, God with us in the flesh. The manger also preaches a message about what this baby, God in flesh, came to do. What did he come to do? To humble himself in birth, life, and even unto death. Jesus came to humble himself in birth, life, and death. Think about his birth for just a moment. Jesus came in such a humble way to show us that he is accessible to all people. He's accessible to all people. He wasn't protected by military armed guards or royalty. They weren't around the stable. They weren't around the manger protecting. Hey, I need to check your credentials before you get in. You don't have a VIP pass. No, anyone could access him because he was so low. The message of the manger is that all people can approach God. He is approachable and he is accessible. Not for the wealthy, not for the royals, not for those who have a lot of money or religious 
profiles or whatever. No, he came so that he would be accessible by all people, people like you and people like me. Now, in the same way, Jesus came in a humble birth. He lived a humble life, didn't he? His whole life was lived in humility, and even he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. That's what Paul just told us. Jesus did not come into this world to be pampered in a palace. Jesus came to the earth to bear our punishment, to bear our shame, to be a propitiation for our sins. It's why he came. He was born to die. And he did it in humility. The the birth, the life, the death of Christ from cradle to cross shouts a message about humility. Shouts a message about humility. He became one of us so that we might become one with him. Church, this is really, really great, great news. And I want to tell you why it's such great news. Jesus is accessible to all of us. He doesn't require you to have the proper religious credentials to access him. Doesn't require a certain pedigree, a background. Doesn't doesn't require you to be tucked in or, or jacketed up to go to church or have a good church background. You grew up in church. He doesn't require any of those things. He doesn't require you to have a lot of money. He doesn't require you to have all your stuff together in your life and figure it out before you come to him. All people on the face of the earth can come to Jesus. He is the most accessible king there ever was. Not on a mountain. God's not on a mountain. And we have to climb to get to God. When I hear people make those comparisons about religion, you know, religion says, hey, God's on a mountain. There's all these different ways up. You go your way, I'll go my way. We'll all go in the same direction. It doesn't really matter, right? Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. We'll never get to the mountain. We will never climb our way to the top. But the good news of the gospel is he has made himself accessible. He came near. He came low down to us in a manger. This is great news. There is no stairway to heaven. It's by falling on your face, going really, really low. All all these things are accessible. Jesus is accessible. Salvation is accessible. Forgiveness is accessible. Eternal life is accessible for all of us by this baby in the manger. But 
there is a certain posture. There is a certain character about us of how we have to approach Jesus. Here's what I mean. We have to approach Jesus the same way he approached us in humility. So just imagine for just a moment. You want to access this Jesus. You want the forgiveness. You want salvation. You want eternal life. You want God. You and I don't come to Jesus standing up, giving him our religious credentials. You don't come to Jesus like that. You don't come to him and say, Jesus, I've been baptized five times just to make sure. I, I, I was in church every time the doors are open, Jesus. That's coming standing up. Jesus, you ought to see my journal collection. It's killer. I got all these notes. I got so many Bibles, Jesus. Like, man, I get, Jesus, I've given so much money to the church. I have served the church. I have been a member of 10 churches. I have fed the homeless. I give my clothes to goodwill. Jesus, look at my stuff. And to people who come to Jesus high and lifted up, he will humble you. Those who exalt themselves, Jesus will humble you. And you, if you're trusting in those things, you will not see the face of God. You will see the back of his head. In order... For us to access Jesus, access salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, we have to come like him, really low, really, really low, face on the ground, nothing to offer Jesus except the sin that made salvation possible or necessary. He, you, don't, you don't come to him bent down. Some people, it might be you today, you're like bending down with this Jesus thing. Yeah, yeah, I want to go low, but I, I'm still trusting in me somewhere. I, I'm still thinking, there's just no way it can't be this good. I got to contribute to this Jesus. So you're bending down looking at Jesus and you're not on your face. You got to get on your face. You got to go low to the dirt floor like he did when he came into the world. You have to throw yourself down to Jesus. Have you ever done that? The band's going to come out. And I want to give just this opportunity again for anyone that might be here today and you might find yourself, yeah, I get the Jesus thing. I go to church. I'm religious. But, but in the back of your mind, you're like, I really trust in me to some degree. Like there's something in us, by the way, it's a sinful thing that will carry the rest of your life. Even those who've walked with the Lord forever and ever. There's like this growing dependency uh, for us to trust in us and what we're doing to make us right with God. We'll, we'll never stop fighting that, by the way. 
But maybe you're here and you're not fighting that. Maybe you have truly today been trusting in you. You're bent down looking at Jesus, but you've never actually gone to the lowest possible place of being undone, completely, beautifully wrecked before Christ. If that's you today, would you hear the good news? That Jesus says, if you go low, when you humble yourself before him completely, you know what he does to you? He exalts you. He, he takes your face and he lifts it up. He pulls it up and says, now you're welcome into my kingdom. Now you are worthy because you have assumed the proper position. Have you done that in your life? I pray that God moves you to do that today. If that's you and you wanna talk after service today, please, please don't go another Christmas without knowing For those who have humbled themselves before the Lord, you're here, you're tracking, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Living a life of humility is your call. You started in humility, live in humility to the end of all of your days. And people who live in humility count other people more valuable than them, right? Doesn't that mean if we count other people more valuable than us and we live in humility, doesn't that mean that we need to go tell them the message of the manger? Doesn't it mean that we care about them? We go tell them the message of the manger. Go and tell people the message of the manger. Tell your loved ones, tell your children, even if they know it. Tell your mama, your daddy, tell your brother, your sister, tell your friend at work, tell your brother-in-law, whatever it is. God will give you an opportunity this Christmas to go and tell people the good news. It is our job to step in and be faithful. Let me pray for us. Father, we've read this story thousands of times, but yet you still awaken new wonders in us. God, thank you for doing that. Don't let ever in us become stale or numb to the most profound, magnificent event in human history, the day that you came to us, that you came near when we were far off, that you came high off the mountain and you came down to a lowly manger because of your great love to save sinners like us. God, thank you for your amazing grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Church, if you are here and you are a visitor or a guest and I've never met you, would you stop by on the way out and just just meet me briefly? I won't keep you too long, but I love to to smile and, and tell you that I don't, I don't just yell at you on Sunday. I'm actually calmed down a little bit when I get out there, but uh, I'd love to do that with you. Uh, if you have questions about our church, hit up that area out there called New Here, Start Here. Um, I love you. Go tell people on the mountain the message of Jesus Christ. Y'all stand.
Shepherds feel. 